Welcome to Conversations with Q. I'm Lucia, Q's Marketing Director, and every week I have a chat with a marketer or entrepreneur from the tech space to get to the bottom of a bunch of things that are probably fascinating you, inspiring you, or downright puzzling you right now. Think how to make decisions about your career, what it actually takes to build a successful startup, marketing tactics you should and shouldn't bother with, the dark side of hustle culture, equality in the tech industry, and more. This week's guest is Ryan Robinson, a blogger, content marketer, and side hustle specialist who, according to his LinkedIn bio, has been mistaken for Ryan Gosling in four American states. Sadly, we didn't have time to cover his doppelganger in the conversation that follows, but we did chat about lots of other fascinating things. You might be noticing a common theme in our podcast guests. All of them suffered a failed business at a terrifyingly young age. But perhaps suffered is the wrong word, because they all learn valuable lessons from it. Ryan, for example, invented a product called the Eye Stash in college, which ultimately left him with less money than he started with. However, it taught him never to start a business with nothing to fall back on, which is why he's now built a highly successful blog teaching his 250,000 monthly readers how to run a side hustle. Ryan told me how he's achieved this alongside working a full-time job at Close.io. We also looked at the bigger picture of working in the tech industry, discussing how best to respond to incidents like Grant Cardone's chauvinistic comments at Drift's Hypergrowth Conference, and what we can all do to create a more diverse and inclusive industry. Enjoy. And I saw that you studied business at Chapman University, um, specialising in leadership, entrepreneurship, finance. So what I wanted to ask you was, did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur or a businessman from a young age? Yeah, so when I went through school, I mean, I, I really didn't have much of a focus on what I wanted to do. I, I thought mm. that I wanted to be in something related to finance, but I knew definitely business. Um, so I kind of took a smattering of different classes around like entrepreneurship, um, some finance stuff, the finance and, and accounting um, was really pushed kind of by my my parents as like, hey, this is a okay. great solid career. Um, if you like numbers, if you learn that you like numbers rather, uh, this could be a really solid foundation for anything else you want to do eventually in life. Um, and so mm. that was kind of where I where I really got started, but it wasn't until I had my first um, online marketing class that I really sort of like felt that something click in my head. Um, yeah. And it was this this teacher that I still keep in touch with today. I go down to his class and like sit in, speak every year, every other year or so. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in, in one of our first classes, we literally sat down and registered domain names as like the very yeah. first thing we did. And so that was kind of when I grabbed ryrob.com, when everything really sort of began for me. <laughs> oh, cool. So you got in there quite early then. Yeah, yeah, that was in, I think that was in 2010 or 11. I mean, the, right, okay. the domain itself kind of just sat there as not much of anything other than, say, like a Tumblr blog for mm. quite a while. But yeah, that's where the interest really began, at least. Yeah, well, I guess it's interesting, you know, you said your parents wanted you to go into finance or accounting or something, because, I mean, the jobs mm. that, well, both you and I are doing today just didn't exist. So, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. So our parents wouldn't have really seen them as viable career options. Yeah, exactly. Like what I'm doing today, 
everything that I'm doing today literally did not exist mm. 10 years ago. And it's, it, it is interesting too, because their, I mean, their recommendations are shaped on by their life experiences, right? That's, yeah. that's something I try and always remember with the lens to view everyone's advice, their recommendations through is that, you know, they're, they're shaped by their own experiences and things that they've learned, things that they've done well, things that they feel that they've learned from. Right. And so, um, a much more traditional sort of career path was the one that they, um, kind of, I wouldn't say laid out for me, but, um, sort of teed up for me. And then they've always been good about being super supportive, um, flexible with when I've kind of deviated from what they originally thought I might end up doing. Um, so that's been a, definitely a blessing is that just, they have been very supportive of everything I've done. Um, you know, everything from, even if they don't fully understand what a blog is or what a podcast mm -hmm. is, they, they listen when I like queue it up for them and, and they like it. So it, it's good to see that encouragement come either way. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, it is sometimes quite tricky explaining to your grandparents <laughs> <laughs> what you do. Um, but one of the things that I always ask people who have actually studied business at university um, is, do you think that you learned more about running a business at university or actually just running a business and working? I think personally that I've learned a million times more from actually running a business. Yeah. Um, but I, I kind of forced myself into a bit of a unique situation while I was in business school. Um, I started my first business while I was in college, and it was it was uh, kind of an ill-fated product invention. It was called the iStash, and it was an yeah. iPhone lookalike kind of uh, hydro-anything device designed to fit, I'm doing air quotes over here, uh, <laughs> cigarette-shaped um, objects <laughs> um, and a lighter inside of it. And people were taking the ice dash to concerts, music festivals, things like that. And, and I ended up selling say around 6,000 ice dashes when it was all said and done, um, did a pretty decent job as far as learning experience, but I was in the hole a little bit financially by the time the business mm -hmm. wrapped up. And so I, I think that kind of learning in tandem with school and a real life business is, the ideal way to go. That way you're, you're putting real things into practice that you hear in the classroom um, rather than watching them just float off into uh, nothingness. Sure, and yeah, I was gonna ask you about the ice stash because it sounds like a really kind of fun project and you know, it's really cool to invent something like that when you're still studying. Um, and you just mentioned that, you know, it kind of failed. And I think I read that you had to move back in with your parents for a bit. So what would be your advice to someone who's had a failed business? How do you bounce back from that? My advice and everything on my blog that I like to write and talk and, and do videos and, and everything about is, is sort of revolving around this idea of the side business as a way to kind of hedge risk. Um, and that's my mm -hmm. advice too for when a business fails is that I'm a very strong believer of, you know, if something totally bites the dust, if you blow through your savings, if something catastrophic happens with your business, you have to shut it down, go find a job where you can put your skills to use um, and rebuild a foundation in order to then go out and, you know, work on something new of yours if you want to. So yeah. my, my personal belief is always to to fall back to a job. Don't go further in debt if you have to close a business just to, to start something brand new because it's gonna take time to generate revenue, to start to profit, to be able to pay your expenses. So 
Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of avoiding debt whenever possible. So yeah, that's that's my real advice is, is yeah. find a job where you can keep building your skills. Um, it's going to introduce you to new people. You're going to learn new things. You're going to get interested in new things and you never know what can come of that. And I think I'm a reflection of that today that you know, after it's it's always easy to look backwards and connect the dots in hindsight, right? But mm-hmm. um, taking a look at just the the kind of linear progression that I've had, I'm a reflection today of the different jobs I've had over the past few years, and those jobs have led me to meeting some incredible people, a lot of leaders in the business world that came through um, Creative Live, the online course um, platform when I was working there. And a lot of those people I've been able to get on my podcast because I met them or brushed shoulders with them when they came through Creative Live. So that's just kind of one example of how I see kind of my path being a reflection of the different jobs I've had. Yeah, I I think you're so right. It's often kind of down to chance encounters or the people Mm -hmm. that you meet is such a big part of it. Um, So would you say that you know, if you're talking to someone, let's say they were kind of young, they were just about to graduate from university and start their career, do you think it's a good idea to sort of have set goals in your career or do you think you should just let things happen organically and kind of see what happens? Like what should motivate you? Man, that is such a good question. (laughs) I think honestly the answer should vary depending upon the kind of person that you are. Um, if you're very like goals driven, goals motivated, if that's something that truly helps you, I think it can be a positive thing for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you're, you're viewing, setting the goal of, you know, I want to make my first million dollars by 25, if that's your kind of goal and that stresses you out and it adds too much pressure, um, and you crash and burn with a business you try and start, obviously that's a bad thing. So I think that for me, having clear goals like that have worked within moderation, within reason. Um, Because to be totally honest, um, few things when you look at it through like this macro lens of like, I want to achieve X, Y, Z by a certain year, or I want to have this kind of business, um, you know, before I'm 30, those kinds of things rarely happen on target in my experience. Mm. Um, maybe somewhere in the ballpark if you're super uh, dedicated, if you build the right habits, if you create the time to actually work on those things and bring them to life. Um, That's what I personally believe is most important is just building habits that reinforce getting yourself towards those goals rather than say just painting a target on the wall and saying like, okay, let's get there. Yeah, definitely. And I I think it's interesting because you can kind of apply the same thing you know, in within a business and within things like content marketing, for example, it's often when you work at a startable startup and things are a bit unpredictable and just with tech and the social media landscape in general, we never know what's around the corner. So I find it sometimes quite hard to, you know, set objectives for marketing. Um, so I'd kind of love to hear your take on that, because obviously you've got so many years experience working in content marketing. Oh, totally. I, um, I'll give you a couple of examples, but my first that's just top of mind for me today um, is typically when I publish a new post that has a very like large keyword opportunity, right? So mm. if there's the chance to rank number one for something like business ideas or how to start a blog, um, those are two examples of posts I have um, and, and goals that I originally set for them. 
Um, let's talk about the starting a blog one because that one's very top of mind today. Yeah. Uh, when I first published this post, um, it was in June, I think it was June 2nd of 2018. And today we're in the second week of December recording this. Um, and it's been about six months, a little over six months since I published that post. And my typical goal that I set out with, um, with a piece of content that's like super in-depth and on a very, very competitive keyword term is to rank on the first page within six months for it. Okay. And there's a ton of little things that go into getting there, obviously. Um, otherwise, content marketing wouldn't be such a huge field. Yeah. Um, but the goal I typically start with is six months to the first page. Um, and for my own site, I've made that goal much more aggressive. Usually, I can get to the first page within, say, three months, four months. Um, mm -hmm. And with this starting a blog guide, I've gotten to... You know, as of this recording, I'm I'm totally going to jinx myself by <laughs> even saying this, <laughs> but I I just recently got the quick result as number one oh, for how congrats. to start a blog, yeah. or at least I'm being tested there. I know Google cool. is a big fan of testing search placements, so when you're listening to this, I probably won't be there, <laughs> but I I hope to long term um, kind of solidify my ranking there. Sure. So how do you get to that stage then where you're ranking number one on Google? Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is the point where people should just go and read your blog posts. Because I know that you, you published a really good blog post this year, actually kind of talking through all of the strategies you use. And um, I think what I like about all of your blog posts is they actually are really kind of actionable. And you have this style of writing, which is sort of very to the point and sort of sort of zero bs which i really like have you kind of always had that style or is that something that you've kind of cultivated over the years oh that's such a compliment first of all so thank okay. you um and i i do think it's kind of uh been an evolution getting to my style of writing and i actually think my style always changes in some ways it's always mm -hmm. kind of evolving maybe small little iterations as i go but I think that I'm I'm kind of a reflection of a, a mix match of different writers that I've personally read and enjoyed. So yeah. um, Malcolm Gladwell's probably my favorite writer, um, and I love his writing style. Just the way that he kind of takes super complex ideas, he's able to distill them down into much more simple concepts using examples. That's something I always strive for. Um, I would mm. never think of myself as being a great writer, um, but it's something I aspire to. And yeah, I, I do want to touch on um, your question about also ranking up on the top of search yeah, for, for competitive it. keywords. Um, because that's that's something I've been trying to really document much more. And, and as you mentioned, yeah, in that post I have about creating a content marketing strategy, it does break down a lot of these concepts. But so much of it, really so much of it, um, I, I can't stress this enough, is related to matching the intent of someone who's searching for this mm. keyword phrase. So someone who's searching for how to start a blog is probably like already convinced that they want a blog, right? Like this is something that... They know the terms for it. They they are probably just looking for a very clear tutorial, step-by-step, -step, linear, something that's approachable, not super overwhelming. Um, and so you see a lot of elements of that within my post is that, you know, there's a there's a hyperlinked menu up top to make it feel much more welcoming and digestible and 
and every section is sort of broken down with videos, with images, with screenshots, with with other additional resources you can go and learn more about when you want to dig a little bit deeper into something. And so I think that by far is the most important thing that so many um, bloggers and even content marketers can can overlook is that you need to match, first and foremost, you need to match the intent of mm. the searcher in order to even uh, be considered a good post to rank on the first page. Sure. Yeah, I think that's really good advice because, you know, when you're a content marketer and you're constantly trying to come up with new ideas, I think it's quite easy to get carried away with things and forget the person you're actually writing for and what they need from your content. Um, so that's kind of some really good tips on, you know, how to write a, an effective blog post. But I'd like to ask you a bit more about kind of content marketing skills and the core skills that you need in this profession, because obviously digital marketing can be quite an overwhelming place because you've got to keep up with the fast pace at which technology develops and then your skill set has to adapt to that. So what would you say are the core skills that people need to master if they want to be successful in content marketing? I think number one by far is being a curious learner. Um, as you alluded to, right, skills are always sort of changing, which skills are most important, rather, are always kind of changing, evolving. The tools are always changing, evolving. You guys, Q, didn't even exist a little over two years ago, right? So yeah. in this space, everything is always changing. And I think by far uh, the most important skill is just to be curious and to be willing to learn and try new things, to experiment Um but, you know, that being said, I think the next best thing, something a little bit more tangible, um, would be the ability to just build relationships with people. So make yourself personable. Go out of your way to connect with others in your space. Like I, just as an example, I'm talking to someone later today with um, zero agenda as far as what we can do for each other as, you know, content marketers. But I had just seen her name pop up as a content marketer. Uh, more and more over the past six months. And I realized, hey, I haven't talked to this person ever before. I should get to know her. We're in the same space. We're, we're both working with lots of the same clients. Um, if we just hop on a quick chat and talk, introduce ourselves, there might be some ways that we can collaborate together, um, you know, whether paid or unpaid or just for fun in the future. And that's, that's kind of a common trend that I've seen um, looking back over the past couple of years is that I have benefited so much from just going out of my way to connect with other people, whether it's you know on Twitter, over email, uh, for a video chat, in person at a conference. Um, every relationship that I've consciously gone out and built in the content marketing space has led to new opportunities, and and you know just being top of mind also for other content marketers. You can there's a definitely a sense of camaraderie in this space. Of you know I'm always looking for opportunities where I can weave in something about what you guys are doing at Q in, in my writing across different publications and for guest posts and other projects I'm doing. And, and you guys also keep me in mind for things that might be a good fit to mention or loop me in for quotes. And there's, uh, there's tons of benefit to be had by just making yourself accessible and approachable to other people and just really going for building relationships. Sure, yeah, I think things like um, Slack groups, for example, or, or even just Twitter mm -hmm. are often easily overlooked by people. Um, 
just in kind of business as a whole, but there's so much that you can learn from them. And, and we had Sujan Patel actually on the first season of this podcast. And I, I, I did ask him what his top learning resources were, kind of thinking like he might say certain blogs or books. And he just said, just people he knows. That's who he totally. learns from. Yeah. So as well as giving people lots of advice about content marketing on your blog, you also um, teach freelancers how to land higher paying gigs. Um, and I'd really like to kind of ask you a bit more about this because obviously we're seeing more and more freelancers in the working world now, people who are self-employed. So you strike me as someone who has a really, well, it's evident you have a very strong personal brand and your writing style is very compelling. You know, you can see that if you just go to your sign up page. So what is your advice um, kind of on personal branding and just being able to sell yourself? Oh, man, um, this is another topic where I feel like I should have <laughs> a course on um, just because it's yeah. so in depth. Right. Mm. Um, but so much of building a personal brand is really just taking taking yourself and putting yourself out there. So if you don't have a website, you need one. There's no way around it. Um, if you want to build a personal brand for yourself, you're not going to build a massive brand by just having um, an Instagram following or just having you know a bunch of people on LinkedIn that tune in. Those are good starting points. Those are ways to amplify your message. But I think you really need to own your platform in a long-term fashion. And really today, the best way to do that is by having your own website or blog, whatever you want to call it. And I think mm -hmm. that it's a great destination too for really just uh, clarifying what you're all about. So making a strong statement about who you are, what you believe in, um, and then not being afraid to share that message with other people. So I, I spend a lot of time um, promoting myself, promoting my own work. And that's, that's done through, you know, writing, I have a publication column on Forbes now. And so every time I'm able to publish on Forbes, my, my message gets amplified out through a much larger channel than I personally, um, have on my own site. And so finding little ways that you can leverage, um, platforms that have larger audiences than your own, um, that general concept is something that I've kind of uh, replicated in many different ways over the years uh, to build my personal brand. And, and a lot of it, too, is is just building relationships with others in your niche, right? So, yeah. for example, um, I've had people on my podcast like Lewis Howes, um, Joel from Buffer, like a really diverse sampling of people from the world of entrepreneurship, from startups, um, and my personal brand has benefited by the fact that I've been able to associate myself with a lot of other people who are kind of, you know, call it more successful, more established, more well-recognized within my space. And there's a lot of things you can do to kind of just help people like that without expecting anything in return um, right away and, and build your brand based on a relationship with some of these people. And maybe that starts by, you know, helping them with the stuff on their blog or helping them with uh, growing their social media by engaging with them all the time. There's lots of little ways that you can kind of build relationships with people who are, you know, at step 10 when you're still at step one in your field and, and benefit by both learning from them and then associating yourself with them. Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting, isn't it, with sort of personal branding and networking, because 
you almost have to not be strategic at all to actually succeed at it. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong is that they kind of do go out with an agenda and Facebook groups or whatever, and they'll be really self-promotional or just kind of come across as insincere. And that never works. Yeah, it's one of those counterintuitive things where, you know, you obviously have a goal that you want to accomplish eventually, but at least in the short term, you can't approach it with a transactional mindset. Otherwise, you know, it it just kind of feels a little bit slimy or, you know, someone who who receives an email from you that can tell there's a clear ask um, within your first introductory email those ones often get uh, archived. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I, I always prefer to, to when I'm reaching out to bigger people than myself, at least, um, definitely, um, I'll always provide some sort of value first. And I think that, that that goes with how you should start pretty much every relationship, um, especially online in the content marketing world, is to take a minute to step back before you ask. I mean, even if you have something you want to ask eventually, I think that's fine, right? Like we're all here to accomplish something. We have goals. Um, But if you take a minute to step back and really think about, hey, this is a real other person on the other end of this computer here. Um, How are they going to react if I immediately just ask them to do a favor for me? Does that Mm -hmm. make sense to do? And if it's a totally cold relationship, like just take a second to think about how they might want to receive some value from you first. And that can come, you know, in in a million different formats for content marketers. We love getting mentions of our blog content. Um, So if you have a website yourself, like just weaving in a mention, you know, you mentioned uh, Sujin Patel earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, Sujin's someone who I've gotten to know pretty well over the past couple of years. And that relationship um, really started by me just reaching out and quoting him in an article on my blog. Um, And it's kind of grown and evolved since then and i can i can point back at god probably a hundred more of those kinds of relationships that really just started by me trying to showcase the person that i wanted to build a relationship with first yeah i think you kind of almost have to think how would you behave in real life like you wouldn't just go up to someone (laughs) in the street and just ask them a random question or ask them to do something for you so and it's easy to forget because it's the internet and it's still the wild west (laughs) yeah definitely if you're enjoying ryan's tips on blogging and content marketing we've got tons more ideas and strategies over on the q blog this week we published a new guest post by marketing agency founder matthew stibb who shared the simple formula articulate marketing used to increase their social engagement by 32 percent in three months it's a short read but it gives you a highly effective action plan that you can implement in just 15 minutes a day. Head over to blog.q.co to give it a read. So with the freelancers that you um, create content for and give advice to, um, would you recommend if someone wanted to go into a career in freelancing that they work in-house at a brand or something, you know, they're employed by someone else for a decent period before going freelance? Or do you think it is possible and you can be successful just going straight into it. I've met plenty of people on both sides of this spectrum. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say there's only one way to do it. Um, because as, as I said earlier, right, like my personal experiences are shaped 
or my personal advices are ex, shaped by my experiences. So mm. me personally, I do recommend to people that they start freelancing on the side of their day job first. And the reason why I always recommend that is because you're going to be much less tempted to take prices that are below what you're worth when mm. you're freelancing on the side of your day job. It's not going to be the income you're truly depending upon in most situations to pay your bills, right? Hopefully mm. your day job is covering your living expenses. And then any freelance projects you're able to land on the side are a bonus. It's, you know, savings, it's to plan for a trip or to plan for doing something nice, um, to build a runway for eventually freelancing full-time. And my advice on that front is, is to always, always, always charge a little bit more than you think you're worth. And when you're going out and you're pitching your services, whether it's you know an hourly rate or a project-based fee, if you're a freelance writer or content marketer, um, if you're charging per article that you write, um, start with something that you feel is a little bit beyond what you may be worth today and then work your ass off to over-deliver yeah. for the client that accepts that rate for you. Um, and my, my personal philosophy on pricing is that if uh, someone accepts the very first price that you offer, you're not charging enough. Yeah. And my, my approach to increasing my rates has always been double your rates and see if someone accepts it. Um, and I think you really need to hear, you know, in excess of 10 no's to a certain price that you're offering in order to really internalize that, hey, maybe that is too much. Um, otherwise, I think you need to, to keep pitching to refine your offer because it's either your offer isn't what they need or they don't see the value in it, um, or it's the wrong kind of person, the wrong kind of business that would benefit from the service you're offering. So. I think personally, um, you know, I just did this recently. I, I don't really take on much <clears throat> freelance work anymore, but for probably a year, I had been at about $2,500 per post um, that I get paid from my clients. And I, I hadn't really taken on a new client really this year. Um, I have a couple of like longer term ones that I've been sort of servicing for the majority of this year, but I had someone new reach out to me, a brand here in San Francisco just a couple weeks ago, and they really wanted to work with me. I, I said, hey, I'm kind of winding down my freelance stuff. Um, and because, you know, I have a day job today, I have yeah. my blog going, that's kind of a an additional source of side income for me. And because I don't need the extra freelance income, I was like, you know what, time to double my rates, see if they say yes. Mm. Um, so I, I doubled my rate and they immediately said yes, <laughs> which tells me I'm charging too little, I guess. <laughs> yeah. at, at my, uh, you know, twice as expensive $5,000 a post. So it, it's really interesting to see that happen. And obviously you can't, when you're starting out freelance writing, freelance content marketing, you can't just charge $2,500 or $5,000 um, per article. There, there's a lot that goes into that, right? It's mm. it's uh, super long form stuff. I'm, I'm promising certain deliverables as far as how I'm going to promote that work as well. So mm. that's kind of a preview of, what clients care about. And I think the more that you can kind of dig into what your clients actually care about, um, first and foremost, do they want content for their blog? Yes. But what do they really want? They want more readers. They want more customers. So how can you use content to help them do that? And that's what I try and cut to the core with. That's how I've been able to kind of command the rates that I command. 
Yeah, I think pricing is a really tricky subject and I often see conversations about this in Slack groups I'm part of where people suddenly someone says like oh I don't know how much I should be charging this and then everyone kind of because no one really likes to talk about money well certainly not in the UK as well we're like even more reserved about it but it's interesting watching those conversations because then people will say what they're charging and it will be totally different to someone else and then everyone's like oh my god I'm clearly charging completely the wrong amount so I think it's quite it's good to have discussions about it and I think you're right you know a lot of people undersell themselves yeah and there's also there, there's no perfect answer to what no. you should charge um I've I have definitely in the past charged too much for where I was at in my career and then you know afterwards I've really had to scramble to make sure that I do deliver the value for how much I'm I'm charging someone so there is a balance to it um and I think there's, you know, there's never this perfect harmony where you're charging exactly what you should be earning and the client is also exactly yeah. super 100% happy with what they're paying you. Um, so I'm always just a big fan of over-delivering on yeah. what, I, what I promised my clients. Sure, yeah. Well, I guess as we were saying earlier, because this is still a relatively new industry, that's part of the reason why no one really knows how much things are worth because um, it can be quite hard mm. to quantify sometimes. Um, so you've talked about how um, you have a day job and your, um, am I right in thinking that's your role at Close? Correct. Yeah, yeah it's content kind of marketing for Close. Yeah, cool. And so you're running your blog, um, you host your podcast, you contribute to publications like Forbes, and I think you also do mentoring. So how do you juggle all of this? Like, would you say you have a good work-life balance? <laughs> I really do, you know. I, I think on my average day, so I'm a very early riser typically. Um, a lot of days, I'd say three days per week on average, if I'm being honest with myself, I'm up by 4.30 or 5 a.m. Um, and I like to put in my side project time before I switch over to my day job stuff. So with Close.io, I'm still working full-time for them. Um, we are a fully remote company, which is, okay. I would say, like super integral to me to be able to even do all the different things I do because I don't have to, you know, commute to an office. I don't have meetings every single day. We group all of our team and company meetings into just one day, at least our marketing team does. Um, mm -hmm. So we've made a, a lot of decisions that kind of make everyone's lives much more manageable and able to kind of um, cram different things into it. So for me, it's, it's really, um, I can't praise enough how how central having a remote job has been to me being able to scale a lot of different projects all at once. Um, mm. But yeah, as I was as I was alluding to, uh, my side project time um, goes in before I switch over to working on closed stuff. So typically from you know the hours of five thirty or six a.m. to around nine a.m. Um, is go. when I'm working on stuff like writing for my blog or. Um, you know, outreach to podcast guests or working on freelance projects. Um, that's when I try and cram in the side stuff. Um, and I, I've actually wound down most of my one-on-one -on -one mentoring. I'm, I'm kind of transitioning those types of things over to being courses through my website. So okay. I have a course on building a blog. I have um, a course coming out in uh, within the first few months of next year, 2019, related to freelancing, kind of the business side of freelancing. So I'm, I'm trying to 
um, <clears throat> basically spread myself out, spread my knowledge out um, to more people in a more democratic fashion versus just um, doing the one-on-one mentorship stuff because I, I really have felt that I don't have the time for that. So, yeah, a lot of it comes, I guess, the, you know, long-winded answer. A lot of it comes down to just prioritization and, and creating habits, routines, like every, every Sunday evening, I physically schedule blocks of time on my calendar for the week ahead to say like, okay, you know, this morning I'm working on this project. Um, Mm. This afternoon I'm doing this. Um, So I'm a big fan of making the time, um, creating the space and then honoring those commitments too. Because once you, the the first time you decide, oh, I think I need to actually sleep in. Um, The first time you kind of slack off on the commitments you make, it becomes a very slippery slope and it's easier each subsequent time to kind of justify not getting up or not putting in the time that you already committed to a certain project. Sure. So do you find yourself working like pretty much every day or do you have, you know, one day a week where you just don't do any work? I pretty much do work every day. I think weekends, um, I would say most weekends I have at least one day where I don't Mm -hmm. even crack my computer open. But, um, you know, every day, Monday through Friday, for sure. And then typically I try and reserve a few hours on one Saturday or one Sunday. It's kind of flexible. It kind of depends on what's going on. If we're traveling, then obviously I I kind of leave the computer at home, cut myself off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But if, if we're home, if we don't have things going on, um, I'll definitely put in a few hours um, on a weekend just because personally it, it doesn't really feel like work when yeah. I'm working on something like my blog or you know the podcast or freelance stuff it's all it's all in my mind much more of an investment in my future rather yeah. than work so that that kind of uh, change in context helps me um, really stay motivated for it yeah, and I think when you're doing lots of different things as well, it doesn't feel like such a slog. Um, we are having more conversations in general now about kind of self-care and, you know, avoiding burnout, which is good because I think we've been fed a lot of um, kind of hustle culture mentality in the startup world and with entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. But I think it does vary from person to person, you know, and um, for some people actually working is really energizing and you don't necessarily need a break from it like I personally get quite restless if I just have like a day where I'm doing nothing and obviously it's really good to do that sometimes but I've kind of started to realize that I like to be busy (laughs) and I think yeah I think as you know one of these themes we've been talking about is uh, it comes back to knowing yourself yeah definitely for sure Yeah, I think having a remote job is a godsend if you've got loads of kind of side projects or you want to take your career in a new direction. And that's also really good, I think, for your health, you know, like not having to commute. It means that, Mm. you know, you have you're not as tired. You also have more time to cook yourself a nice meal or work out or whatever. But obviously there are some drawbacks to working remotely as well. And we've covered this on the Q blog quite a lot Um you know, mental health and how working on your own can impact that. So have you had any of those kinds of experiences personally, like any downsides to remote working? 
You know, I really struggle to find downsides personally <laughs> because I'm a kind of person that does really value my own space, my own time, um, being mm. alone even, and, and especially being alone when I'm trying to do focused work like writing. So I, I have, looking at my calendar right now, I have two full days every week, typically Mondays and Fridays, if I can make it such, where I'm literally writing all day nonstop. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, my, everyone on my marketing team knows that these are the days not to bother me unless, you know, the shit's really hitting the fan somehow. Um, so I sign out of Slack. I have notifications off my phone. If you want to reach me, um, you have to call me. (laughs) Otherwise you can't really even get in touch with me. So I may be the wrong person to ask about more of the kind of, um, isolation sort of downsides to it. But um, I do think one thing that I miss about being in an office with people is um, it's kind of, it goes back and I go back and forth on this because part of it is, you know, when you're in an office with 10, 20, 30, whatever number other people all sitting around you, um, yes, you're a little bit more open to distractions. Someone can walk over, Mm. kind of derail your, your focus on a certain project. But I think that remote companies do miss out on lots of creative or lots of creativity. So I have had some experiences at previous jobs where I worked in an office um, where we've had awesome ideas just by like, you know, going and grabbing lunch with someone or going and just walking up to someone's desk and starting a conversation about an idea I had. And and those ideas have spawned into full-on projects or, you know, blog posts that went viral or infographics that got a ton of uh, attention. So I think that there is something, um, it's difficult to quantify, but I think there is something that remote companies miss out as far as um, collaboration and creativity goes. And it's it's hard to say how you can solve that aside mm-hmm. from just having, uh, forcing each other to create the space to communicate um, without an agenda, right? It's easy to set meetings for, you know, the marketing team, but shouldn't you maybe also set up just one-on-ones with um, other people on your team throughout the week just to kind of come together and chat without, say, an agenda of tackling a certain project? So that's something that I'm personally a fan of. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think sometimes as a remote team, I mean, it can happen naturally, like, I I will just chat to some of my coworkers on Slack, you know, and like private messages as well as group messages. But I think recently at CUNY, we've been trying to kind of make a concerted effort to get those collaborative ideas and conversations going. Um, So like one thing we've introduced is having different, a different partner, we call it accountability partners, but really it's more about just, yeah, it's less about kind of holding each other accountable to specific work we're doing and more just about chatting and getting to know people who aren't necessarily working on the same thing as you. So, you know, if I'm paired with one of the developers and we have a chat, some really interesting things can spark from that because, you know, we wouldn't usually be working on the same thing, but I think it is really healthy to have those kind of interdepartmental conversations. Totally. And then, you know, coming to those conversations without an agenda too. Yeah, exactly. Um, so obviously you've worked in tech um, for many years now. Um, and I've been 
bringing up this topic with lots of people I've had on the podcast because I think there's so many important conversations we need to be having about the industry, um, which obviously doesn't have the best reputation when it comes to issues of diversity, whether that's to do with race, gender, sexuality, but things are changing and, you know, both organisations and individuals are being called out for discrimination or inappropriate behaviour. So this year we've had quite a few kind of incidents um, and one of them was the Drift Hypergrowth Conference and they faced a lot of backlash after Grant Cardone made some chauvinistic comments which people quite rightly called him out on. Now I know that Grant's someone you've interviewed on your podcast and I'd be interested to kind of hear your take not necessarily on that incident but just the kind of wider problem. Um, You know, obviously Grant's a really respected professional in his field of sales, but clearly certain behaviour needs to change. So what do you think we can do to prevent these kind of incidents and attitudes? But, you know, in like a kind of compassionate way, you know, maybe if you've got a peer who's not really saying something or doing something quite right, like what can we all do to change that? I do think it's it's the responsibility of everyone, um, especially leaders within companies, to to call out when they see behavior that's not right. But then, more importantly, to create a community where people can speak up when they see something that isn't right, or you know, discriminatory or rude. Um, so, personally, I you know, I've worked at plenty of companies um, where you know, weird or borderline things like this. Um, have happened, um, and oftentimes the person who's on the receiving end of inappropriate behavior, maybe it's from a manager or from a, a, you know someone on your own playing field even, um, mm-hmm. a lot of times the person on the receiving end of that doesn't feel empowered to speak up. So I think there's a lot of different avenues you can go, whether it's you know providing a safe space for uh, giving anonymous feedback um, or really just creating a culture where leaders um, call people out and publicly, you know, reprimand people for bad behavior like this discriminatory practices um, mm. or outright fire people and and give very clear, candid reasons. I think that's something, especially in tech, where a lot of uh, people quietly leave after an event like this goes down. Um, yeah. And there's no no company-wide email addressing the the broader issue and no policy changes as a reflection of that and so i think you know part of it too is that there does definitely need to be more women in leadership roles um in Mm. tech and then for sure more diversity just in general through tech leadership and i and i do want to address um what you asked too with with the grant cardone example in particular grants Someone that I had <clears throat> on my podcast literally like two days before he gave that hyper growth yeah. speech. I was thinking uh, that. I was so, looking at the timing and I was like, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Ridiculous <laughs> yeah. timing. Yeah. And, you know, on the interview that I did with him, um, Grant's very good at what he does. Like, you yeah, got to give exactly. some credit where yeah. credit's due. Well, there's a reason he got asked to speak at the conference. You know, he's very well respected. Exactly. Yeah. And he's built a huge business. Um, 
but it was a very readily apparent within the first five minutes of my conversation with him that I was like, you know what, this isn't someone that I would personally be friends with. And, yeah. and I don't think that that's, that has to be a requirement for everyone that I interview, right? Otherwise the number of people I interview would probably be pretty small. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I do, you know, when, when I saw that speech and when I saw like so much of the backlash start to happen, I was thinking, should I take this interview down completely? Um, despite him, you know, not saying anything bad on the interview I had with him. Um, yeah. And I decided to leave the interview up, but I didn't promote it at all yeah. um, beyond the just kind of what had already happened. Um, and so that, I'm not really sure if that was the best decision I could have made. I didn't make any sort of like public statement. I didn't reach out to my email list saying anything about it. I didn't really... Um, you know, go to bat against him on Twitter or anything like that. Um, mm. So I'm not sure. I'm, I'm I'm definitely not the perfect person either. Um, but I I do think that there is <clears throat> a need to call out bad behavior like this more often. So I was very happy to see that he got shit on for saying okay. shitty things. Um, I think that was very well deserved. Yeah, and it's tough too in the moment because you're when these things happen, you're prone to making like quick trigger decisions yeah, too. Yeah, um, for sure. So that's kind of a rule, a rule that I've enforced with myself a lot over the years. I learned it in college when I was the president of my fraternity, actually, <laughs> um, that you should never make split second or split second decisions when you're in a crisis. So mm -hmm. yeah, call it crisis management. I try not to make big sweeping decisions when I'm still kind of in the middle of something heated. Yeah, I think it would do a lot of people good to pay heed to that advice on social media as well, because people mm -hmm. can be so quick to respond to things and it's great to speak out about things, but we're also seeing a bit more of a flip side now where you know people are really put under so much scrutiny and none of us are perfect, so. Yeah, and your tweets live forever, too. never forget. Exactly. <laughs> Cool. Well, I think we're going to have to bring things to an end now, um, but it's been so great talking to you. And um, before we cut things off, do you have any projects that you'd like to plug at the moment? Oh, man, nothing in particular. I would say the only thing that I, I'm kind of focused on um, working on over the next six months uh, slash rest of my life yeah. is continuing to build um, the on the success of my starting a blog guide. So if you're mm -hmm. interested at all in, in my personal process for um, everything from the literally mechanics of building a website all the way through to the different growth strategies I use, how I monetize my blog, um, that's kind of my home base for where I'm always updating um, and breaking down how I do what I do on my blog. enjoyed this episode of conversations with q we'll be back next week with another very special guest and in the meantime we'd love to hear your feedback so please do rate review and subscribe to our podcast on itunes <laughs>